Welcome to Protect, suicide prevention training podcast for healthcare professionals. I'm Manan, consultant psychiatrist, founder, and head of faculty at Progress Guide. Good day, and welcome to episode 27. I'm Mahi, your host, and with me is Manan, head of faculty for Progress Guide. As mentioned in the previous episode, we are going through an incredibly busy period of teaching, training, showcasing in the lead up to World Suicide Prevention Day, so we are doing shorter podcast episodes. We do hope you too are getting ready in your organization to observe World Suicide Prevention Day. It gets the word out there, normalizes talk about emotional pain and suicidal distress, and fights stigma. We all have a part to play in suicide prevention. I really do hope that mental health organizations in particular will utilize the day to spread the learnings from the different forums where deaths due to suicide get discussed, like mortality and morbidity meetings, learning the lesson seminars, psychological autopsy case studies, reflective practice following serious untoward incidents. You may call it differently in your organization based on where you are in the world, but essentially the outcome is learnings. And the day can be used to thematically look at the key issues that have come up throughout the year in such meetings. And it will be a great opportunity to focus on one, two, or three improvement areas like enhanced safety planning, involvement of families in decision-making, better safety documentation, or seamless transition of care, improving seven-day follow-up. Whatever is the hot issue in your organization, it is a great opportunity to focus in on that. I guess if you have a willing member of family who have been bereaved by suicide, they could share their story too and keep in sharp focus why this work is so important. Data and numbers do tell a narrative, but there's nothing that moves healthcare practitioners than patient stories, brings to life the importance of the work they do. Fortunately, for most mental health organizations, in comparison to the number of people they serve, suicide is a rare event. Devastating for those who have lost someone, you know, both to the family and the professional, but thankfully it is rare. And days like this, the 10th of September, this can also be used to build staff confidence and reminding staff that it is a rare event. Take time, pause and think how many lives you have touched this year. We don't tend to count non-events. And when a suicide does happen, it is a reminder of the gravity of the work we do as mental health care professionals. Because this could happen in any of those lives who are better off because you were present in their moment of extreme distress. You brought comfort and you brought hope. So it is important to remember that too. That is so true. So you can learn a lot more from what worked well and then look at even better if. The whole ethos of appreciative inquiry and curiosity is quite an inspiring approach to continuous improvement. It is embedded in restorative just culture. We might do a few episodes along the line of just culture. Maybe later on we can pick that up as well. So today, you wanted to do a wrap-up of the suicide prevention training for health regulators. Yes, so on the 11th of August, we delivered the adapted version of PEARLS for the clinical input team at APRA. So APRA is Australian Health Practitioners Regulation Authority. So most people who are working in health in Australia would know it, but I guess for our listeners around the world, this would be similar to the General Medical Council in the UK for doctors, but... APRA covers all health practitioners. How did it go? Yes, very well, actually. Very engaged audience, very keen to learn. What was the composition of the attendees? 
Well, all sorts, but most of them were from a legal background. Some were from the police uh, as well. And in the interactive evaluation we did, 35% rated themselves as novices in the field of suicide prevention, which is not surprising given their backgrounds. 15% considered themselves proficient, and I'm assuming they are the ones from a health or a mental health background. And how frequently do they encounter suicidal distress in health practitioners? So about 85% were distributed between the once in a quarter and the half yearly rating. And 15% said encountered suicidality on a weekly basis. Uh, I don't know how the case distribution happens in APRA and whether particular types of health professionals with mental health related issues are allocated to those with a mental health background and mental health experience or not. But I was left wondering that if that isn't the case, and if that isn't the case, then why is there such a big disparity between the same cohort of people doing the same kind of work? Will you get to find out about how the case allocation happens? Yes. So I will have a debrief with Tamsin Mondi, the national manager for the clinical input service. And I do intend to find out if there is not a particular way of prioritizing the case allocation, you know, people with mental health difficulties going to case managers who have a mental health background, then we are in the territory of the eyes can't see what the mind doesn't know. Or in this case, the ears can't hear what the mind doesn't know. It may very well be that those who have a mental health background are able to see things and hear things that those with a legal background are not able to. And of course, it will be unfair to expect a legal practitioner to pick up subtle signs and symptoms in conversation in the same way as a clinical psychologist would. So that will explain the disparity between in the same group of practitioners in APRA, the, the case managers, why some are reporting suicidality weekly or fortnightly and why the rest are only seeing it quarterly or half yearly. The diversity in that group with people from legal police background, there were people who said they had been midwives and, and then there were people who were clinical psychologists, which is quite different. So it's, it's a very diverse group. It will not be fair to expect them to all detect suicidality in the same way. Yes, that'll be like comparing apples and oranges. Uh, and that in itself makes the case for training and upskilling of people who have not got the background. As we explained in the previous podcast, doctors and nurses, because of their professional background, knowledge of the human body, human physiology, access to means and desensitization to pain and death can do some serious harm to themselves when they develop a strong desire to escape the emotional pain that a notification or an investigation might cause. You talked about Joyner's model of perceived burdensomeness, felt belongingness, and acquired capability. And to that, you can add the volitional factors from Rory O'Connor's integrated motivational volitional model, or the practical capacity to progression from ideation to action from Klonsky's three-step theory. Essentially, I'm repeating the whole issue of access to means and knowledge of human physiology to go with the acquired capability. Actually, Klonsky's second step is also quite relevant. He talks about pain exceeding connectedness on step two, when there is an escalation from ideation to intention formation. So modest or passive ideation becomes strong or active when pain precludes the experience of connectedness to loved ones, valued roles, and sense of meaning and purpose. 
It is similar to joiners' perceived burdensomeness, I guess, and failed belongingness in that sense. But what is striking is how most contemporary models put health professionals in the ultra-high-risk group who have the makeup to take catastrophic steps to break out of the entrapment of life. But don't worry about the models um, as such, because when we do the STEPS program, which is part of the SS module, we will go into detail about Klonsky's model and Rory O'Connor's model as well. Did you go into details of these models? No, not really. As I said, the group was very diverse. And in the pre-course survey, when we ask one of the things you hope to learn today, one skill that you hope to gain today, we generally tend to flex the program according to the needs of the audience. And a lot of the answers were about how to support a person in the moment, the most respectful way to communicate, to show genuine empathy, identifying red flags, a lot to do with conversation and communication. There were some interesting requests about managing self in the moment, supporting colleagues as well, and also about creating hope for health practitioners, but not so much about the model. So we tend to deliver what people are often asking for in these programs. So there was this understanding in the room as to why a health practitioner may be feeling hopeless when they are undergoing an investigation. Oh, yes. They came across as a very switched on bunch. I think the issue is that a lot of them are from a legal background where things are right or wrong, black or white. Shades of gray and ash are quite difficult to conceptualize. And mental health or addictions, you know, these health notifications, they're all about shades of gray and ash. In the courses you run, often we get those aha moments. Were there any such moments? Yes, I think so. Saying that it is much more difficult to pick them up when online, particularly if a large bunch is sitting in one room, so you haven't got the camera just on their face. There was one specific moment which really did stand out for me, which was around the purpose of those in the clinical input team, why they get out of bed in the morning. Can you share more? You know how if you are case managing an investigation, you will be perceived by the health professional you are investigating in an adversarial role. But if the notification is for a health reason, yes, the regulator has to ensure that the practice of the practitioner is safe. But surely the overall aim of the health regulator is to support the practitioner to get back into practice, safe practice, but get them back practicing again. So. As I tend to do, I digress and go off message often. And I started talking about the why. You know, what is your why? Why do you get out of bed every morning? Surely, there can be no greater motivation than reconnecting a doctor, a nurse, or an allied health professional back with patients. Because through the health professional, you are influencing and touching the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. Hundreds of thousands? Yes, do the maths. So let's pick an ED physician. In a year, they will see perhaps 5,000 patients. If they have 30 years left in their career, that is straight away, you know, 30 times 5,000, that's 150,000 patients that this doctor just on their own will see and support. And they wouldn't have done so if they were not ably supported to get back into practice safely. And who does that? You know, it is the clinical input team. That's their role to make sure that the practice is safe and sustainable and they stay well and keep practicing. Every year that ED consultant will train up two registrars as a bare minimum, six months each. So in the next 30 years, that's 60 registrars 
and then each of those registrars, if they see 150,000 to 200,000 patients in their lifetime, multiply the figure by 60, you start getting into some seriously big numbers. Yes, 60 times 200,000 is 12 million people. See, each doctor, each nurse has huge impact on the community they serve. And if they cannot work because of a health reason, that is a huge loss to society and that is where the clinical input team can make a massive difference to the life of the health practitioner, their family, their projected future, the patients that this health practitioner will support, the juniors they will train, the community this health practitioner is supporting. So these people that I interacted with in APRA are at the crossroads of someone's career. They can make it or break it. Surely the goal is to reunite them with life's purpose, i.e. treating patients, supporting people, their passion, their purpose, what brings meaning to their life. This is what the health practitioner has worked for their entire life. And those working in the clinical input unit can help get their life back on track again. When you think about what motivates staff in the clinical input unit, I can see when you frame it in the way you've done it, why it will be more motivating. This is a much better narrative where you are enabling doctors and nurses rather than waking up and going to work to stop health practitioners from practicing. But did the message get through? I think so, at least from the expressions I saw on people's face. Uh, It felt like an aha moment. But this is a different lens to look at one's role within APRA. How do you get past that adversarial perception that the health practitioner has? For starters, Kindness and compassion, in the words we pick, goes a long way in diffusing the tension in that role. You know, that is the how. You know, how we interact, how we converse with the health practitioner who is being investigated. However, I feel that just changing the how is not going to be enough. You have to go after the why. You know, why we do what we do needs to be clearly articulated to the health professionals who are being investigated. We are both working towards the same goal, which is to get you back practicing. Ensure that your practice is safe. Ensure that you stay well and your health and practice is sustained in the long-term future. So, actually explain their role in the process of the notification investigation. Yes, why not? You know, one can use the model that we use for the pain relief conversation. I think in episode 5, you know, so listeners can go back to that episode and have a listen as how you help a person in suicidal distress see the overlapping goals between the mental health professional and the person in suicidal distress. So if I give you a brief recap, we had the person in suicidal distress and the professional on different hills. And on each hill, we had a top tier of position. Below it was interest and below that was needs. The person has taken up the position of dying and considers suicide to be the solution. And the professional has the position of living and views suicide as the problem. So we recommend that the professional digs deep to establish the interests and the needs that underlie the position of dying. So when faced with the ambivalence a person is experiencing towards life, that's what we strongly recommend. Avoid a power struggle. Professionals need to temporarily relinquish their strong desire to pull over the person from their death orientation to one of living, right? That's what we have been saying all along. This requires courage as it might go against all that the professional believes in and is trained in. Gain an understanding of how the underlying interest to escape entrapment and the need to be pain-free manifests as suicidality. So that's at the level 
of interest and needs, the need to be pain-free. And you, then you construct a pain-based narrative and help the person see that their desire to eliminate excruciating pain is a justifiable response, a response they share with all other living beings. This validation goes a long way in establishing the safety partnership, you know, seek first to understand and then to be understood. So once you have been able to help them see that their need is pain relief, you can then begin to explain your role, which is to explain alternatives and help them be pain-free. Together, you all can do things to chip away at the pain or improve their tolerance to it. Essentially, what you have done is you have avoided a power struggle and helped the person in distress see that there is a common ground, you know, with overlapping needs. So there is every reason to work together. That's the model that we use for the pain relief conversation. Yes, I remember that. I think episode five is one of the most listened to episodes as well. This model is so elegant and simple to comprehend. But how does this apply to the aqua situation? Well, here too, you have two hills, right? You have the health practitioner who has been notified and he's on one hill, he or she, and you have the case manager from APRA who is on the other hill. The health practitioner sees APRA as the root of all their problems. In fact, they view APRA and the case manager as the perpetrator or enforcer of expectations that they often consider unreasonable. So are you saying that APRA case manager thinks that APRA's position is reasonable or APRA's actions are reasonable and the health practitioner's position is APRA's actions are unreasonable? Yes, so the health practitioner thinks APRA is the problem. The case manager from APRA thinks APRA is the solution. When you begin to dig deep and look at what are the interests that underlie the position, the health practitioner's interests are to do with self-preservation. You know, all that they have worked for in their life is under risk or under scrutiny as they are being investigated. So understandably, the amygdala kicks in. So self-preservation as the interest on one hill and the other hill, you know, the APRA hill, the primary interest of the case manager is public protection through practice regulation, ensuring standards are upheld. So that still feels quite adversarial. Yes, it does at the level of interest. But if you go another layer deeper, you find that the level of needs, the health professional is saying, hey, help me be a doctor again, right? Help me be a nurse again, or whichever professional background they belong to. That is their need to again practice as the professional that they have trained in. Now for APRA, the need is not that different. As I was explaining before, their ultimate need is to ensure that doctors and nurses are out there practicing. Otherwise, who will they regulate? So yes, as a regulator, they want to make practice safe. But surely that is something that the doctor or the nurse wants as well. Because for them to be a doctor or a nurse in the long run, their practice has to be safe, right? Effectively, if the APRA case managers can explicitly talk about their role, they can share with the health practitioner and their defense union or supporting people, hey, you want to be back practicing again and my role is to help you be out there practicing again. And the way I'm going to help you achieve what you want to achieve is by ensuring that your practice is safe. Your need is to be a doctor again and my need is to help you be a doctor again. So there is common ground? Absolutely there is. But a concerted effort has to be made for the health regulators to help the health practitioners see 
that although at the level of positions, it feels extremely adversarial, the need for them is exactly the same to have more doctors and nurses out there practicing and practicing safely. This is a very different lens for the case managers to view the work that they do. Overall, though, how did the pre and post course ratings go? Very well, actually. You know, this was a Pearl's masterclass, which is normally two hours, but we did an extended one with them for three hours. And three hours is not long at all, kind of goes in a blink. And in that short window, the pre-course rating of feeling confident and supporting people in suicidal distress shifted from 5.6 on a 10-point scale to 7.6. That is quite a significant improvement in a short window. That is, given a lot of people were from a legal background as well. And what was most pleasing to see was that the highest improvements were in their ability to connect with empathy, their understanding of the origin of suicidality, as well as in their confidence to ask about suicidal thoughts and feelings. After the morning masterclass, in the afternoon, they had a session thinking through how they will put into practice the knowledge they have gained. And when I have my debrief with Tamsin, I will get to know a little bit more about it. I had some lovely email feedback as well from some attendees as to how useful they found it. And, and that is always quite pleasing. I do feel that the balancing act for regulators, wherever they are in the world, is incredibly difficult. Yes, you picked up a bit of flack on WhatsApp, didn't you? Good Lord, yes. So I tend to post the podcast on a number of WhatsApp groups that I belong to, mainly made up of doctors, and some of the views people expressed was quite stark. It's their opinion, of course, and they're allowed to have one. And although I was tempted to respond, I didn't. But I did feel that many do not appreciate how difficult the balancing act is for an organization for APRA, you know, in between public protection and ensuring that the health practitioner can get back to doing what they have worked for their entire life. You know, that's quite difficult. Most were actually appreciative of the work that I'm doing with APRA, but some hold very strong views about APRA, which you would expect in a group of doctors. And those views take a long time to shift. Yes. And, you know, actions speak louder than words. And it is a long road for APRA to prove through their actions that they can be kind and compassionate regulators and through the process of regulation, produce better doctors and nurses and allied health professionals. I think that's Martin Fletcher's endgame. You know, he's APRA CEO. But a journey of a thousand miles. Begins with a single step. I thought we were going to do shorter episodes while we went through the busy period in August and September. Well, we begin chatting and time flies when you're having fun. So you are going to be doing Hong Kong this week? Actually, by the time the episode airs on Friday, which is what, the 19th of August, I would have completed the bulk of the Big Bang Protect training that we are going to be doing in Hong Kong. So what are you delivering? So on the 16th and 17th of August, I will train the school counsellors and educational psychologists from 22 schools in the English Schools Foundation uh, in Hong Kong. So that will be on Protect. So they are getting the full uh, training. Six of them will become progress guides as part of our training the trainer offering. On the 18th of August, we will be training up teachers across the 22 schools in life. About 36 of them will become life guides as well who can deliver life to other teachers as well as pearls to students. And then finally, on the 22nd of August, which is the Monday, we will be back to the school counselors again to run the Seven Safe Steps program where they get to practice the skills. You love that program, don't you? Yes, 
I think it is the professional actors that we have in the simulations. They are so good at making it real and keeping it grounded. Which case study are you doing? It's actually a new case study, uh, not Sandeep or Sandeepa that we normally do for Seven Safe Steps. Uh, this person's called Sam. So either Samantha or Samuel, depending on which actor we have got, um, male or female. But more about that next week when we have done the training. Can't wait to hear about the new case study. Are you training GPs on the 30th of August? Yes, that's in the UK. Uh, that's Sutton Coalfield's Clinical Commissioning Group. You know, love training up GPs. They see so many people in suicidal distress. It's a daily affair for them. And they have so little time to train. But it is essential that they have the skills to support people in suicidal distress, particularly those with chronic suicidality, as often they have short periods of support in secondary care, and then they come back into primary care, and that's where the bulk of the support actually happens. But GPs don't get trained in suicide prevention that often. You wanted to talk about the whole of school approach to suicide prevention today, but we have run out of time. Yes, we can pick that up in the next episode. Really excited, though, to be part of the partnership with ESF in Hong Kong. Some of the emerging COVID data for 2021 in Hong Kong shows that the impact on young people has been immense there. Seems like we'll be staying with COVID for a very long time, both in terms of the recurring waves that come, as well as the longer-term psychological impact. Indeed. But I would like to believe that the worst is behind us. Certainly hope so. We have come to the end of today's episode. Today, you learn about an innovative application of the pain relief conversation, how one can use the positions, interests, and needs model in a completely different context to find common ground. Hopefully, health professionals listening to this podcast will have a better understanding of the regulator's role. And if those who attended the PERS course on the 11th of August hear this, for them, it will refresh their why, their purpose, and the impact they have on larger society and the community by helping healthcare practitioners who have had a health notification return back into practice. In the next episode, we will delve into suicide prevention in schools and universities. Today's episode has come close to normal length, although our intention was to do shorter episodes. There are other talks from Anand in the lead-up to the World Suicide Prevention Day on the 31st of August for Lifeline Western Australia. That's at 7.30pm Australian Eastern Standard Time, i.e. Brisbane time. It's an overview talk, Protect Life Pearls, Practical Suicide Prevention Skills from Hospital to Schools. And then there is the UK Suicide Prevention Summit, hosted by Mental Health Academy on the World Suicide Prevention Day itself, on critical crisis care conversations in borderline personality disorder. That's on the 10th of September, Brisbane time, 8pm. Hope you are making plans in your organisation too, as to how to observe World Suicide Prevention Day on the 10th of September. Every 40 seconds, a life is lost to suicide. An awareness about what we can individually do can save a life. A life who is someone's father, mother, brother, sister, son, daughter, husband, wife, friend. You can play a part in the fight against suicide. I hope you do. Catch up next Friday. In the interim, make time to ask someone, are you okay? And if they are not, make time and space for them and convey that it is okay to not be okay. And they in time will pay it forward.